You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.26, My Turn to be Happy, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I am a light-hearted opening, followed by a hard swerve toward the serious. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta, and I'm staring out my window at the falling snow, pondering words like safety and freedom. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 436 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporter, Vaughn E. This podcast would not be possible without your support. Help keep us ad-free by becoming a patron today at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. A subscriber at Subscribestar.com slash GundamPodcast. Or making a one-time payment on our Ko-fi page ko-fi.com slash Gundam Podcast. There is one week left for you to submit your haiku-style poem for our Season 3 contest. That means you can submit one more entry for your chance to win one of our four prize bundles. Thanks to the generous support of the USA Gundam Store, you could win a Master Grade Gundam Double Zeta Verka, a Real Grade Zeta Gundam, or a real-grade Gundam Mark II, plus USA Gundam nippers and gift cards, not to mention the art prints, MSB merch, Double Zeta Blu-rays, and more provided by Mobile Suit Breakdown. Submit your entries on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by tagging us, Gundam Podcast, and including the hashtag GundamHaiku in your post so that we can find it. Or you can enter by going to GundamPodcast.com slash haiku, and submitting your poem using the form there. As always, your haiku should be all ages appropriate, and it should be spoiler-free. That means that as of today, you can write a poem about anything up to and including Lena's Blood Part 2. Which is what we're covering this week, Lena's Blood Part 2, or Rina no Chi. For research this week, Nina's going to talk about Pan-Africanism and how it might have inspired some aspects of the depiction of Africa in these episodes. I have a couple further notes before we get started. First, there will be no new episode next week. Nina and I both got sick toward the end of production on this episode. Don't worry, it's not COVID, but it has done a number on both of us and put us behind on some other very important work. So we will be taking the next week off to recuperate and catch up, so that we can return properly in two weeks. That means we will not be around to announce the end of the haiku contest, but you should know that it ends on March 7th. There will also be no Radio Free Shangri-La segment this week. I did write a script, but once we started working on the eulogy for this episode, I realized that if we did both segments in one week, there was just no way to give either of them the attention that they need. This week's script will go into the next episode two weeks from now, And going forward, we won't plan on doing an opening skit for any episode that has a memorial tribute at the end. 
I apologize to those of you who already can't get enough of the continuing adventures of Tom Thompson and Nina Nina's daughter in the Universal Century, and to those of you who like When We Spring Eulogies on you with literally no warning, but this is just how it has to be, for now. So without further ado, the recap for Lena's Blood, Part 2. The Audumla skims the water, sending a curtain of spray arcing over the ship. Haman orders her flagship, the Sadalan, to fire its main gun, but the beam is deflected by the water and they switch to missiles. Explosions punctuate the city streets. Ino tells the others that Judo's plane crash-landed on the water, but even though Bicha and El want to go look for their friend, they are pinned down by heavy fire until reinforcements arrive. Pudu uses her new type abilities to track Judo's core fighter to a nearby beach. Mondo is impressed and relieved to find not only Judo but Lina too in the cockpit of the downed plane. Pudu urges him to go get the first aid kit, and while he's away, she gently wakes Lina. Speaking quietly so that Judo won't wake up, Pudu tries to convince Lina to come with her. Lina is in the way here. Judo has already done so many reckless things to save her that he's bound to get killed protecting her unless she leaves. Lina takes Pudu's hand and Pudu leads her into the forest. The Gundam team finally arrive at the beach and revive Judo. All of them are relieved to see him in one piece. But the moment Judo realizes that Lina is gone, he takes off running, staggering and stumbling over the sand as he follows the trail of Lina and Pudu's footprints. Just moments after he's gone, Glemmy spots them all on the beach, and he and his new wingwoman, Amatha Pola, attack forcing the Gundam team back to their planes and mobile suits. Lina and Pudu reach a clearing. There are a few small buildings and a boat, but no sign of any people. Looking around furtively, Lina's eyes land on a long strip of metal, and she darts forward, grabbing it and holding it like a staff. Now Lina is the one who feels she needs to protect Judo, from the dangerous cyber-new type, Pudu. Pudu picks up her own improvised staff and the two of them fight. Pudu crying over the unfairness of it all, that she should have no parents or siblings while Lena has both, that Judo loves Lena for no reason, that Glemmy seemed kind to Lena and gave her lessons while forcing Pudu to undergo the frightening and painful cyber new type training. By the time Judo arrives, Pudu has knocked Lena to the ground and is choking her. Judo calls out to Pudu to stop, but she demands to know who he loves more, her or Lena. Judo tries to convince her that he doesn't need to choose, that they can all be siblings together. He blames Glemmy and the different ways he treated Pudu and Lina for creating this conflict between them. And Pudu finally lets Lina go. That's when they all notice the explosions in the distance. All three of them hear the fighting on the beach, and although Judo wants to stay with Lina, she encourages him to go. After all, isn't he fighting to make them all free? With Pudu offering to stay behind, Judo can join the fight. In the air, Glemmy is trying to destroy one of the core fighters to prevent them from being able to form the Double Zeta. Meanwhile, Judo has identified a serious problem. The core base is missing. It is just as essential for forming the Double Zeta, and they need to find it now. Lina and Pudu can hear him, and Pudu projects a message to the rest of the team. Find the core base! 
While still under fire, El, Bicha, and Mondo find the missing piece and tow it free from where it crashed and half-buried itself on the beach. El spots the Argama approaching over the ocean, and the awareness spreads through the group. It is pursuing the Satellan as it withdraws over Dakar, using the city as a shield. Much of the Neo-Zeon force follows the retreating flagship. From her sickbed, a feverish and shivering Lina senses danger and calls to Judo, look out! He turns just in time to parry an attack from behind, and Lina falls unconscious. Concerned about Lina's fever, Puru decides to make a cold compress and rushes outside to find water. Wu keeps Glemmy occupied long enough for Judo to form the double Zeta, and Judo immediately slashes through Glemmy's flyer. Amathapola flies in to pick up the Bawu before slashing at Judo herself, then grabbing one of the double Zeta's legs to drag it down to Earth and prevent it from chasing Glemmy. The double Zeta kicks Amatha's mobile suit off, and Glemmy shouts for Amatha to fall back, but she is determined to keep up the attack. A missile strike to her glider causes Amatha to spin out of control, and a second hit destroys the glider completely, sending her mobile suit falling to Earth, falling to the jungle and to Lena. Everyone can see the danger, but none of them are able to stop it. The crash blasts through the hut, leaving only supports and bits of roof behind, the whole of it engulfed in flames. Judo lands near the fire and finds one of Lena's shoes among the charred bits of debris. When Puru runs up, there is a brief and terrible moment of hope in which Judo thinks maybe Lena wasn't killed. The rest of the Gundam team arrive, and all of them mill around in shock. Rue tries to snap Judo out of his denial, and Puru tearfully tells him she wants to go back to the Argama, but Judo will not move. He stares into the fire, crying silently. His friends join him, all grieving the loss of their sweet, stubborn friend, Lena. Something I needed to remind myself of periodically as I was thinking about this episode is that Puru is an abused and traumatized 10-year-old, and Lena is an injured and traumatized 10-year-old. I think one and or both of them might be 11. I know that's a major difference. Yeah, that changes things completely. <laughs> well, in that case. For me, Puru is a very easy character to hate. Unless you constantly remind yourself <laughs> that she is an abused and traumatized 10-year-old. Oh, see, I was going to say Puru is uh, an incredibly easy character to relate to. I can clearly see in Puru's behavior exaggerations of things that I also did or said or felt when I was younger, but they are exaggerations. I presume that you never went at another girl with a lead pipe. <laughs> I don't know that. She's not saying anything. Very suspicious. Her preoccupation with the unfairness of the situation and her sort of idea that Lena can just give her judo and that will fix it. These are childish simplifications, right? I mean, it is unfair that some people are lucky and 
some people have horrible things happen to them. But generally speaking, we don't blame the person who was lucky by chance <laughs> for the fact that things panned out that way. You say that. <laughs> and I know you don't. But I'm not sure if you should use the general we there. I think people, in fact, very often blame the beneficiaries of chance and circumstance for having a better or having an easier time. I find Puru here so relatable because what she is expressing, uh, especially after Judo arrives and the fight moves from the physical sticks versus pipes phase into uh, a more theoretical mode, um, is that she's expressing resentment for the suffering that she has endured and the suffering that other people have not, and the nice things that they have gotten, the opulent treatment they have received. That's a feeling I think pretty much everybody has had at some point. But Judo in this scene gets to be, I think, the mouthpiece for the show. And he gets to make the point that while that's not fair, it's not Lena's fault. Lena is also a victim in all of this. Lena has had nice dresses and piano lessons, but she hasn't been free. And the arbitrary and capricious decision by Glemmy to make Puru into a weapon and Lena into a lady is not actually good for either of them. And neither one of them can be blamed for that. And allowing that to turn them against each other just wastes the energy that they should be turning against Glemmy and against the injustices of the system that force them into these different circumstances. I agree that the show basically makes Glemmy their stand-in for systemic injustice. <laughs> uh, however, Judo also like hammers home that there are differences and that Pudu's idea that you can just sort of swap people in and out of relationships and circumstances interchangeably as if they're not individuals and, <laughs> and the sort of individual facts don't matter is, you know, a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly does make her proposed solution to this problem somewhat unrealistic. Well, it fundamentally comes back to Glemmy, though, because it's a matter of her having learned to think of people kind of as objects as completely interchangeable within their circumstances or relationships rather than being, you know, individuals and as such not exchangeable in that way. And she still doesn't quite get this because at the end of the episode, she says, I'll be your little sister from now on. I'll, I'll take the place of Lena because she's a little sister type. She can fit into the judo little sister machine system. He needs a little sister. His pre-existing one is gone. Clearly, that means I can be the little sister now. This will make him feel better. He's sad because he doesn't have a little sister. But even though Judo acknowledges inherent differences between people, he does say that it's wrong to discriminate amongst them. It's wrong to have treated Lena and Puru so differently. But when Puru asks him, which of us do you love the most? He tells her, if you make me choose, it will make me hate you. Which basically acknowledges, like, Lena is his sister and Puru is this girl that he's friendly with, that those two relationships are not comparable. <laughs> Except that he does propose that they all become siblings together. And part of this is, like, being nice to Puru so she'll put the pipe down. But I don't think he's lying. I think he's making a serious proposal. 
Well, again, he's trying to counter Pudu's extreme thinking with more nuanced thinking. Pudu thinks, will you love me or you hate me? It, it can't be anything else. And you can't love two of us. Right. And one of us has to be the favorite. And I demand to be the favorite. And if I'm not the favorite, then I'm nothing. It's extreme all or nothing thinking. And Judo instead proposes, actually, that's all wrong. <laughs> I can love Lena and I can love you. And then you have not just me as an older brother, but Lena as a sister. And presumably the extended Gundam team is part of this big family of siblings. And yet at the same time, so one, when he is proposing this to Pudu, Pudu looks sad and thoughtful. Like she's really thinking this over. Uh, Lena is being choked. And so it's sort of hard to know if her expression is like, I'm, <laughs> I'm being choked here. I think she looks decidedly skeptical I about what Judo is saying. Yeah, I mean, Judo is basically saying to the person who is choking her, let's all love each other and be friends together. And this is a pretty rough start to that relationship for Lena and Pudu, or it would have been. Though I do think by the time that Pudu stops choking Lena, Lena has kind of come around on this, and she becomes an active participant in this dialogue. Because at the end of this scene, when Judo is holding Lena, and the battle is turning against them, and he needs to go off and form the double Zeta and join the fight, Lena is the one who convinces him to do this. And she says, you said you were fighting to free us. Was that just a lie? Well, she's pinpointed that he he hasn't fought this long and he hasn't come this far just for her. That it hasn't just been about rescuing her. That there are bigger factors at play, which we know is true because he's admitted that he wants to see this through even after he saves Lena. And then even though Lena is the one to push him to go, the one who makes him feel like he can go is Puru, saying that she'll stay with Lena. I thought it was so interesting, such a weird coincidence, that last week you referenced that quote about not wanting to be protected, wanting to be free. Mm -hmm. And that's what Lena is saying here. I don't want you to stay here hugging me. I want you to free us all. We want liberation. We don't want slightly more opulent cages. I also predicted that Pudu was going to totally, like, send this whole situation to hell in a handbasket. Just saying. You did, in fact, call that Puru was going to try to uh, remove the competition, so to speak. Yeah, it's such an illogical plan. It's such a child's plan to be like, Judo has come all of this way and all of these weeks trying to save his sister, and he's finally done it. And now I'm going to make her disappear, and that will make him stop doing all the reckless things to search for her. Yep. What? <laughs> <laughs> And yet, like many a child's plan, she uses a lot of cunning, planning out how she's going to do it. She just doesn't give any thought to the realistic consequences of these actions. Because it is, she does uh, manage it quite effectively, getting Mondo to leave, getting Lena to come with her. She's persuasive. I thought it was really well and expressively done when she finds the core fighter and she, after Mondo leaves, like, pulls Judo's hands apart so he's not hugging Lena anymore. Yep. Very revealing about Puru. And she wakes Lena fairly gently, but she's so, like, firm and insistent and serious when she's saying, 
You have to go. I did find it absolutely heartbreaking when after Judo has gotten Puru to stop <laughs> choking Lena, Puru sort of collapses to the ground crying about how no one has ever loved her the way she wants to be loved. Just, ugh. Yeah. It's such a good scene. It's so heartrending. It's so compelling. All of the characters feel very true to themselves, even as they are put into this extreme situation and as they are behaving, uh, in some cases, quite erratically. And then they still manage to bring through these important themes. And what is really a, a quite high-level discussion about society that doesn't feel heady at all. It feels natural in the mouths of these teenagers. I also want to bring up the fact that Pudu is not the only one with some odd prejudices. Lena, when she first grabs that pipe to fight off Pudu, she doesn't say it's because Pudu is trying to kidnap her. She doesn't say that it's because she's afraid Pudu will hurt her. She says that she needs to defend her brother from Pudu because Pudu is a cyber new type and cyber new types were made for fighting and that's all. Presumably she picked that up when she was on one of those Axis ships. That doesn't seem like the kind of thing they would have been talking about on the streets of Shangri-La. But that she's absorbed this idea that there's an entire group of people who have been rendered weapons and that's it. Like they're not even human people to her anymore. They're just weapons of war and nothing good can come from such a person being near her brother. Whereas Purdue doesn't even know what a cyber new type is. And all she knows about her training is that it's horrible and scary. And she's very insistent. I'm not some freak. I don't know what that is, but that's not me. And it both is and isn't her. Do you agree with that read of Lena's fear of Puru, though? That it's based on this idea of cyber new types? I think so. To be honest, I think this is the weakest part of the episode. The scene where Puru has led Lena to this hut, uh, and Lena decides that Puru is a threat, and she goes for this, like, stick to try to fend her off. Because just from watching the animation, without the text, it feels like Lena seeing the hut, seeing how remote they are, and maybe because of her intuition, realizes that Puru means her harm. And so she gets the stick to defend herself. But then when you add in the text about the cyber new types, right. it confuses it. It feels... Um, contrived? Yeah, it feels contrived. It feels inconsistent. There's a dissonance. I strongly agree. Her reaction to the clearing, particularly the fact that it's devoid of people. And, you know, you can imagine a confused, injured, recently unconscious, and probably delirious Lena being persuadable and then suddenly realizing after she sat a little time to wake up, oh, wait a second. Right. And then everything about her actions and her posture and everything feels like self-defense. Because if Pudu is just trying to lead her away somewhere and then Pudu's going to go away, it would be easy enough for Lena to wait until Pudu leaves and then go back to the beach. Like... Mm -hmm if Pudu didn't mean Lena harm, specifically. 
In a lot of ways, it feels like this line about cyber new types was inserted just to remind us what cyber new types are. And perhaps also to illuminate that Pudu does not know or understand what she is. Mm -hmm. Part of what makes this three-way conversation between Pudu, Judo, and Lena so interesting is that they very specifically hit on three important points. And there are three important points that would not naturally flow from a conversation like this except under the very specific circumstances that have been constructed here. Because the three points are that the goal is freedom, that discrimination between people is wrong, and that one of the ways for them to overcome this is to all become a family of siblings together. Universal brotherhood, sisterhood, siblinghood. And some other synonyms for those things I just talked about would be <laughs> liberty, equality, and fraternity, which have been the rallying cry for leftist revolutionaries since the French Revolution. And I do not think it is a coincidence that this crucial conversation hits on those three concepts so explicitly. That and the fact that this conversation is taking place in Africa, a continent that, you know, up until this point in the mid-1980s would have been experiencing a lot of revolutions, a lot of efforts to gain independence from colonial powers, efforts at self-determination, efforts to resist neocolonialism. I also notice how Puru's idea that there can only be one sister, that Judo only has enough love for one of them, reflects this kind of artificial scarcity thinking. Whereas Judo is like, no, there is enough love for everybody. Right, that the, the feelings are different. He will never have the same relationship with Pudu that he has with Lena, but that doesn't mean he can't have a loving relationship with her. And what is Pudu so jealous of with Lena? It's that Judo loves her even if she doesn't do anything. Judo loves her just for being who she is, just for existing, for being a wonderful, lovable human person. Puru has never experienced that. Puru has only ever been valued for what she could do. You've brought up before that the show uh, puts a lot of focus on found family, on uh, groups of support that we create. However, at least in this episode, the show does not seem to reject the sort of primacy of blood family. Because when we look at the relationship you just mentioned, Judo and Lena, and that Judo loves Lena, even if she doesn't do anything, we understand that, and the characters understand that, to be grounded in the fact that they just happened to be born siblings. He doesn't love some random person with no relationship to him for just for existing. He loves his sister just for existing. And Pudu brings up, I never had any parents, I never had any siblings. So her understanding is that only through those kinds of relationships do you get that unconditional love. And Judo's behavior through this scene more or less reinforces that. <laughs> well, but this scene is exceptional in some ways. I don't think this scene suggests that Judo can't love Puru just for who she is. Maybe he even does love Puru just for who she is. But her behavior, trying to kill Lena does make that difficult. Sure, but 
he also makes very clear that Lena comes first. That that if Pudu made him choose, he would pick Lena. Well, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that because he, he's trying to be nice. But it's understood, and Pudu understands it. <laughs> I don't know. I think asking me to choose will make me hate you is a very different statement from I prefer the other one. Asking him to choose is obviously like hugely emotionally manipulative and unfair as a behavior. And it's possible that he's suggesting that they could all eventually have that kind of sibling relationship, but they don't currently. And for all that he's forgiven a lot on the part of his friends, I don't think his relationships with the rest of the kids from Shangri-La are unconditional in the way that his relationship with Lena is. Au contraire, if those relationships were not unconditional, why has he forgiven Bicha so many times? Bicha has managed to make up for a lot. I personally would not forgive a person who tried to kill me, but you know, or get me killed, as the case may be. That's a distinction without a difference. I guess we just disagree on this one. I wonder what our listeners think. Coming back to Lena's skepticism and fear around cyber new types, this is yet another example of a cruel distinction being made because cyber new types don't have a choice, right? The implication is that this has been done to them, not a thing that they chose to do for themselves. And it's still more ironic because it is emphasized over and over again in the episode that this whole group of young people are new types with a huge degree of, of mutual receptiveness and communication possible between them. Yeah, they're practically networked in this episode. They're basically a local area new type network. And it's particularly interesting to see who is able to broadcast and who is able to receive. Right, it's like they're all routing through Pudu and Lena. And sometimes L. L definitely seems to be on the more receptive end. L is the one who first notices the arrival of the Argama. And everyone else is like, the Argama, after Elle sees it. Mm. <laughs> Including, I think, Lena and Puru. So Elle is also transmitting as far as them. Yeah, I just think everything is going into Lena or Puru and then gets spread out to the group. Mm. Although clearly there's some signal loss because some messages are only kind of getting through, especially to some people like Rue. There's differences in relative power, both for sending and receiving. Honestly, it would be weird if it were working perfectly, since this is the first time we've seen them as a group do anything like this. And it's it's so cool to see. And it's countless little moments. You know, Elle, who's not even looking at Eno. Eno is behind her. She somehow still knows that he's losing focus and needs to get it together. All the way on to, you know, Lena knowing that her brother is about to be attacked from behind and warning him. Yeah, I think the episode as a whole is really well put together. It's got a structure that really works for me, which is that they have this one through line with Puru and Lena and eventually Judo, um, and then that keeps being interrupted by little snapshots of the larger battle, um, both in the city and then over the ocean and then over the island, and then the conflict between the Argama uh, the Sadalan and the Garuda at various different times that are being woven through it in order to create a sense of chaos and to keep the tension up, 
What's really remarkable about this is it switches between very uh, hectic, exciting action sequences and calm, sedate uh, scenes in the hut, and yet it always keeps the tension up. Somehow, Lena and Pudu still feel very much a part of the nearby fighting, even though they're at this remove. And they make the fighting in the city and in the harbor feel like part of the fight that the kids are in over on the island. When the new villain, August something, in his Dreisen, shows up towards the end of the battle, and we realize that his team must have driven off or destroyed those Jim 3s from the beginning of the episode. We can feel the flow of the battle even when we don't see all of it. I think that's masterful. Another thing that emphasizes that sense of scale, as you pointed out, we, we move back and forth between the quiet scenes of Lena and Puru, the fight on the beach, but also the larger battle in the city as a whole, every time we touch base with the Satellan or the Audumla or the Argama. Haman using the city as a shield for her retreat. Bright firing even before she's completely outside the city because he doesn't want to let her get away. And again, we're, we're seeing Bright's increased willingness over time to accept civilian casualty. Yeah, it does seem like Bright's solution to almost every problem is to fire near, near the civilians and hope that they're not caught in the blast. Another heartbreaking realization. It is possible Hayato doesn't know yet that Katz died. I think it's very likely he doesn't know. We're all used to our current levels of communication, but given how limited communication is in the Universal Century, and the fact that not that much actual time has elapsed, maybe a couple of months, Hayato almost certainly doesn't know yet. And Bright is going to have to tell him. You mentioned August. He gets another one of the text intros for a mobile suit. Although we've seen a Dryson before, haven't we? We did. We saw a Dryson in the battle just prior to re-entry. It was piloted by Rakan Dakaran, who we also haven't seen since then. I did wonder if... There's any commonality between the episodes that use these little text introductions? Is it a, a particular designer likes it? Or uh, I can't think of any other commonalities because as I just pointed out, it's not as if this is the first time we've seen a Dryson. Right. I feel like they've done it three or four times now, but they've introduced way more than four mobile suits. And they don't necessarily feel like the most significant mobile suits. They've used different fonts. <laughs> they, like, I don't know what exactly the purpose of this is because it's used so inconsistently. It's cool, though. It's kind of neat, but I wish they would <laughs> do it more often. If the idea is to help someone like me who has trouble identifying and remembering mobile suits and their names, you would need to do it pretty consistently for this to be helpful. Maybe these are just the ones that are on sale now. <laughs> But speaking of things they definitely want us to remember, Amatha Pola. Oh my gosh. They introduced two new named villains this episode. With unique designs, unique uniforms, 
And then they kill her off immediately. Yeah. It's like Shalia Bull all over again. Even faster, though. At least he had a whole episode that was like his. She's just there to back Glemmy up. And everything about her design says, I'm going to be important. You should pay attention to me. You should learn my name. They keep saying her name over and over again in the episode. And contrast this with the, like, Karaba members who are operating the Aldumla with Hayato, who might as well be clones of each other. They're just generic <laughs> guys wearing sunglasses and hats. Well, and they give Amathopola a very specific character, too. She attacks aggressively. Even when Glemmy, and Glemmy is one who is never eager to retreat or run away, but even Glemmy in this fight is saying, oh, we need to back off when Amathapola engages that last time. She's like, no, I, I finally, the third tries the charm, right? <laughs> like, this attack is bound to work. And she's got like a, a bright red flight suit on. The whole setup screams, I'm an ace. Cool haircut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when she first showed up on screen, Nina's like, oh, I could cosplay her. <laughs> Which I guess you could still do, but... That'd be a deep cut, yeah. a character who was in one episode. But honestly, that's my reaction to any remotely interesting-looking adult woman in anime. <laughs> it's like, oh, are you an adult with a cool haircut and or costume? Cosplay idea. Yeah, you're just tired of cosplaying teenagers. Well, I'm in an age now where it feels weird. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> the voice for Amathapola was by Tongu Kyoko who's probably most famous to anime fans for her role as Kay from Dirty Pair. Oh, nice. Love it. Who I think has basically the same haircut. It's very similar. I think Kay's hair is bigger. And, a, you know, it's a different color, but yeah. Uh, and I think the reason why she's portrayed this way, I mean, it's possible she was intended for a bigger role and then they just decided to cut it and throw her in in this role, but... I think it's probably meant to increase our sense of shock and disbelief when her mobile suit crashes into the hut where Lena is resting. Because everything about that scenario makes you think it's not going to happen. Yeah, I'm, you know, two and a half Gundam series in now, and you would think that I would be completely inured to Tomino's willingness to kill off major characters, but I was shocked. I was mouth hanging open, couldn't believe that this had happened, as Tom can attest. I will attest to that. Yes, Your Honor, that's the truth. It's a dark turn. Even for Gundam, it's a dark turn. Precious few main cast characters have been killed. Ryu, but Ryu was always sort of on the periphery of the, the teens group. He wasn't a Kai, he wasn't a Hayato, he wasn't a Frabo or a Sela. Uh, and Katz, but... In Zeta, really anybody outside of Camille, Fa, and Quattro has to count as a secondary character. I don't know. I could almost imagine comparing Lena to, say, Matilda. Hmm. Because as we've pointed out, you know, ever since she was kidnapped, Lena is not a, a major driver of the story in terms of her actions. She is a motivation for Judo and drives the story in that way. But in terms of things she does, mm -hmm. she's kind of just around for a long time until her escape. 
And I remember commenting at various points like, God, this plot line of her being kidnapped is taking forever, and what purpose does it serve? Now we know. Mm -hmm. I would normally find a character being killed off right after they've been rescued really manipulative as story writing, but it didn't strike me like that here. Yeah, I think the way that they handle Lena's death is really remarkably well executed. It doesn't feel like she was just killed off in order to further anyone's character development or give Judo some motivation. In fact, her death has stripped a lot of the motivation from Judo and uh, left him in a position of needing to decide what is next instead of having an obvious answer. Her death also hammers home this point that to me feels central and essential to all of the Gundam franchise so far, uh, but it does seem to get highlighted in Double Zeta. You know, Judo keeps talking about wanting Lena to be someplace safe, but the fact of the matter is that nowhere is safe while there is war going on. You know, Masai's village thought they were safe and the Gundam team still wound up there. Lena was alone in that hut but that hut is someone's home. There was a clearing. There was a group of structures. There was a boat. Any civilian could have been in there and could have thought, well, I'm a non-combatant and I'm not in the city and I'm sure no one's going to bother the little me. Lena was never going to be truly safe while the war was going on. And I do think the episode invites us to think of Lena metaphorically as a stand-in for people like Lena, places that are like Lena in some ways, because we have to imagine how many other 11-year-old girls were killed in Dakar during this battle. We see large portions of the city on fire or in ruins. Explosions in the streets of right. downtown. When we see L and Bicha and the Hakushiki and the Mark II at the beginning of the episode, basically fighting trench warfare in the ruins of this city, the rubble there hiding behind used to be buildings. And maybe those buildings were empty, but there's a lot of destruction, and it seems very unlikely that all of those buildings were empty. So Lena is but one of many children who died in this episode. And Lena's relative privilege over the last couple of episodes, the way she's been treated by Glemmy, the gilded cage in which she has been trapped, did not protect her. And so you see wealthy cities like Dakar and impoverished villages like the ones in the last few episodes, all touched by the war in the same way. And the war treats all people as objects or pawns. Glemmy was going to use Lena for political purposes. Haman recognized Lena as a potential pawn for use against Judo, even though Glemmy never used her like that. Haman uses the city as a pawn, assuming that Bright won't want to fire his main guns through the city itself, so she uses it as a shield. The fishermen from a few episodes ago were a way to, you know, flesh out the ranks. And if Lena represents one way in which war makes people into tools, Puru represents another way. The soldiers are themselves both victims and perpetrators. And again, I don't 
think our setting is insignificant while child soldiers have appeared in conflicts in many different parts of the world uh, child soldiers in africa are particularly well known and would have been at this time you pointed out when we were watching this episode that puru is dressed in like pan-african colors yep red yellow and green I got curious about how those became the Pan-African colors, and that became the seed of my research this week. Ooh. Going into the end of this episode, we have Judo's confrontation with Rue. Rue is, somewhat hypocritically, trying to get Judo out of his emotions for the time being, because they're still in a very dangerous situation. And for all that he needs to grieve and that he's going to need to process that, right now is really not an ideal time. I say hypocritically because she was so easily manipulated by Glemmy just moments ago, and that was pure feelings. That wasn't logical at all. She should have just stabbed him through with a beam saber and been <laughs> done. She had every opportunity. And as Lena has pointed out to us, Glemmy is dangerous increasingly so as the episodes roll on. Yeah, Glemmy's little deception there with Rue turning the tables on her, this time he is the one deceiving her, really reveals that whatever innocence that boy showed early on is gone. It's it's gone. There's nothing there. I don't think the show does a good job of demonstrating why Glemmy's personality has shifted so dramatically from his introduction, but it definitely has. Counterpoint, the show's case is that his being betrayed by Rue is what does this to him. Hmm. Not that that's a, a reasonable reaction. The show clearly thinks he's scummy and bad, but I also see this as a clear reaction to his sort of loss of innocence in those early interactions with Rue. Well, if that's what set him on this course, it'll be very interesting to see where he goes now after this crisis of confidence. Because he arrives at the burning hut before the rest of the Gundam team does. I do not understand why he doesn't just shoot them all. Because he's having a crisis of confidence. Well, and he's very caught up in honor and ideas of honor. And maybe to him it would feel excessively cowardly to shoot a bunch of people who aren't even in their mobile suits. But honestly. <laughs> I don't know. I think he is actually affected by Lena's death. Not that he's like particularly sad, but... It strikes a blow to his very inflated sense of self. Because, like, he has spent all this time, all of his energy over the last year or so, trying to manipulate these two 11-year-old girls. And he's completely failed at it. That's got to be rough. Now, that was another thing I didn't understand. He doesn't just scoop up Puru and take her with him. He tells her to come. She says, no. And sticks her tongue out at him. And he's like, oh, well, shrug, leave. He does also have to get out of there quickly because he is alone facing, like, the whole Gundam team. Right, but in that moment, do you think Judo would have stopped him if he had scooped up Pudu and gotten back in his Bawu? I think he would have had some difficulty scooping up Pudu. I think she would have fought back. And also, all the other mobile suits are racing toward them right then. If he tried to grab Puru, he might have been stuck having to fight the Hyakushiki and the Mark II and the Zeta and the Mega Rider all on his lonesome. We also get a uh, 
ironic little moment of space noid solidarity when Glemmy notices that parts of the attacking force of Neozeon are retreating, and he identifies them as the Earthnoids. Gosh, these Earthnoids. So Glemmy's racist on top of everything else, is what you're saying. Doesn't it almost feel like he's engaging in a moment of camaraderie <laughs> with Judo? Like, we, are, we might be enemies, but those Earthnoids really suck. Uh, I did not get that from him. <laughs> then why bother saying it out loud while he's standing next to Judo? <laughs> why bother hanging around to comment at all? Tom shrugged. <laughs> <laughs> Two other aspects of this scene that I want to address are first, uh, Judo's shove of Pudu. We make a point of talking about interpersonal violence in the show, uh, particularly that there's a lot of slapping and punching and so on in various other episodes. This didn't feel particularly violent to me. No. It wasn't a slap. It was sort of a shove. I wouldn't even call it a shove. Like, I think Pudu starts walking towards him and he just like puts a hand out and stops her. Yeah, I interpreted it less as holding her off and more that she has just said something really insensitive and poorly thought out. And it's sort of like a, hey, dummy. <laughs> mm, I saw it totally differently. I thought it was like a kind of rejection of the offer she's just made. Oh, it's definitely a rejection of the offer. And I saw Pudu then collapsing and yeah. sobbing, not in response to any, not like pain or surprise or any of the things you feel when somebody shoves you or hits you, mm -hmm. but just like the pain of rejection. Yeah, he didn't knock her down. I saw it as more of like a, like in the same way somebody might like whack their own head, like, oh, I'm such a dummy. It's like he's doing that to her, mm. sort of a tap of like, how could you even think to suggest that now you're gonna take Lena's place? Oh, but I don't think he's unsympathetic to her. I know the suggestion is completely beyond the pale. And while Judo is totally overwhelmed by his feelings in the moment, I think he understands emotionally where Pudu is coming from. I completely agree with you that uh, he's not in any way being unkind. I think we mostly agree <laughs> on what's happening here. There's just some slight shades of difference in what we saw. The other point from the end here that we should at least mention is that Glemmy is basically reckoning with his privilege. Refusing, I think, to reckon with his well, privilege. But it's, it appears to be the first time he's ever asked himself the question, am I where I am in life? Have I been promoted? and been given all this responsibility and power, not because of my abilities, but because of who I am. Because of my lineage. I would argue that the, f the first step in reckoning with privilege is being willing to ask that question. Yet I don't think he's there yet. No, I think he's, he's not. He's <laughs> maybe like halfway to taking that step because he doesn't ask the question. He says, it cannot possibly be the case that I have obtained my, my position only because of my status. Surely it must be because I am actually really great. How weird that all evidence available to me at the moment indicates I'm not great. Indicates that I am a failure. I hear a question in his voice <laughs> when he's making those statements. 
Gosh, this was an episode we had a lot of disagreements about. Coming back to Rue, though, this is another one of those instances in which two people are arguing and they're both kind of right. <laughs> Judo is correct that people are not just motivated by logical concerns, that there are deeper things at play, that people's feelings matter. But Rue is also right when she points out that he can't wallow here. He cannot just collapse and cry and give up. The show is very careful in this final scene not to offer any kind of resolution. The scene ends like a sentence trailing off in an ellipsis. And now Nina's research on Pan-Africanism. As mentioned in the talkback, Puda's most recent outfit is red, green, and yellow, a combination of colors commonly associated with Africa. But what's the basis for that association? Answering that question means talking about Pan-Africanism, an overview of its history through the 1980s, and how it connects to the central conflicts of Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta. These are big topics, and in particular, I'm not able to touch on the careers of all the vast number of writers, politicians, organizers, and intellectuals who were part of and shaped Pan-African thought. But if you're interested, there will be some great resources in the show notes with additional and more detailed information. A heads up that a couple of the organizations I'm going to talk about use terminology to refer to black people that we don't really use anymore. These are organizations created by and for black people, and often they were using the preferred terminology of their times though sometimes there was contemporary disagreement. I'm going to use their acronyms, and you can look them up if you would like to know what it all stands for. The colors that we identified as African colors are more accurately called Pan-African colors. And there are actually two sets of colors the term can apply to, green, gold, and red, or red, black, and green. These color combinations appear on more than two dozen current African national flags, and because they're good colors, about a dozen other countries as well. But in Africa, the color choices in common were a conscious decision to represent the Pan-Africanist ideology. According to one source, the choice of these colors stems from their use in the Ethiopian flag, Ethiopia being of particular significance as the oldest independent nation of the continent. Ethiopia resisted attempted invasion multiple times, and had only a brief period of foreign occupation, from 1936 to 1941, following the Second Italo-Ethiopian War. This made it an icon of black independence. The first African state to adopt these colors in their new flag was Ghana in 1957, with a flag designed by artist and statesperson Theodosia Oko, though she does not credit the Ethiopian flag, but describes the symbolism of the colors as green for Ghana's lush vegetation, gold for its rich mineral resources, and red for those who died for Ghana's independence. So that's the Pan-African colors of green, gold, and red. What about red, black, and green? Somewhat confusingly, the red, black, and green tricolor flag is called the Pan-African flag and was created in 1920 at the New York Convention of the UNIA. The flag was a response to a racist popular song of the time and was meant to be a symbol of black pride. The UNIA was founded by Marcus Garvey, and in speaking about the importance of the flag, he said, Show me the race or nation without a flag, and I will show you a race of people without any pride. The flag continues to be a symbol of black liberation and black nationalism, and was particularly popular in the 1960s and 1970s. Okay, backing up. What is Pan-Africanism? 
Like most such movements, it defies simple definition. The meaning changes over time and depending on one's focus, and it's been embraced and promoted by people with a broad range of different political views. One definition I found described Pan-Africanism as a solidarity movement for all indigenous and diaspora ethnic groups of African descent, a declaration that these groups share not merely a common history, but a common destiny. The movement has its roots in the struggle against slavery, racism, and colonialism, and the first organizing efforts go all the way back to the early 1800s, coinciding with the Haitian Revolution and other insurrections by enslaved people in the Americas. Early organizing efforts cultivated a sense of connection between the African diaspora population and Africa itself, a sense of pride and identity, and a community separate from racist institutions. Organizing also created vehicles for raising awareness of black issues and for consolidating power for the pursuit of political goals. For example, the African Association, founded by Trinidadian barrister Henry Sylvester Williams, published studies and reports, and made direct appeals to UK colonial government on behalf of colonized territories, such as a petition to Joseph Chamberlain, then Secretary of State for the Colonies, to include a clause in the Rhodesian Constitution to protect Native Africans' interests and respect their customs, among other provisions. Williams also organized the first Pan-African Conference in London in 1900. Marcus Garvey, who I mentioned before, was a Jamaican publisher, political activist, and orator, best known as the founder and first president of the UNIA, which he first tried to found in Jamaica and, after that effort failed, in the United States. It was stupendously successful in terms of membership and the reach of its publications, and Garvey and the UNIA were so influential that their platform came to be known as Garveyism. The organization's objectives included race pride, promoting commerce and industry in black communities, promoting Christianity, and, quote, civilizing Africa. If a couple of those caused you to raise an eyebrow, you're in good company. A big part of its platform was, quote, Africa for Africans, with self-governance and self-determination free from outside interference. Though for Garvey, this included repatriation, the return of the African diaspora, mostly of the Americas, to Africa. The UNIA created numerous black-owned and operated businesses, including a steamship company to facilitate trade between Africa and African diaspora communities. They held conventions and had a weekly newspaper with global circulation, published primarily in English, but with French and Spanish language pages included. And this newspaper was banned by multiple colonial governments. Garvey never visited Africa, but inspired many of the continent's nationalist movements with his ideas about black self-sufficiency and independence achieved by black people themselves. The good that Garvey and the UNIA achieved was largely overshadowed by what one source called Garvey's political shortcomings. He was known to have, let's call it a working relationship, with members of the KKK over their shared belief in racial separatism. He was anti-Semitic and prejudiced against mixed-race people. Part of the reason his first effort of founding the UNIA in Jamaica failed was because he was viewed as a pretentious social climber who looked down on most black Jamaicans. And if you read what he wrote about black Jamaicans, you would understand that position. Some financial improprieties at the steamship company, investigated by none other than a young J. Edgar Hoover, landed Garvey in jail, though his sentence was commuted and he was then deported to Jamaica. And topping it all off, at one convention, and let's remember the UNIA's conventions were in the United States and its membership primarily based there, Garvey was elected Provisional President of Africa. 
I bring up Garvey both because of his contributions to Pan-Africanism, but also because his example highlights some of the conflicts within the Pan-African umbrella. First, in that a black diasporan group positioned itself as knowing what was best for Africa. It's especially ironic when you remember that the central tenet of their platform is Africa for Africans. And by Africans, we mean us, a group of people who have never been to Africa. Well, and how, how patronizing it is to, you know, insist that Christianity is what's best for Africa, to think that Africa needs, quote unquote, civilizing, and to assume that the black diaspora population would be the leaders in this case. Repatriation was presented as the right thing for the diaspora, but seemingly without any consideration of whether or not they'd be welcome. These positions were not unique to Garvey and the UNIA, but they were also not the only view of Pan-Africanism at this time. Harlem radical Hubert Harrison characterized Garvey's election as a farce, and the African Blood Brotherhood, a predominantly Afro-Caribbean organization, questioned whether Africans themselves would want a black person from the Caribbean, Garvey was Jamaican, as opposed to their own able leaders. Another of Garvey's goals was strengthening the imperialism of independent African states, envisioning an African empire that encompassed the whole of the continent, and in which all, or at least the vast majority, of the world's black people would live, and which he would lead. The African Blood Brotherhood felt that African empire and black imperialism would simply recreate the problems of European imperialism. But Garvey wasn't the only prominent figure of Pan-Africanism's history to be pro-imperialism. There was a current of thought that the best way to stand up to the European and American empires was with new empires, which is why W.E.B. Dubois, who disagreed with Garvey on quite a few issues, wrote in favor of Japanese imperialism. It was in keeping with the thinking that empire was the way to free previously subjugated people from European interference. He saw Japan's defeat of Russia in the Russo-Japanese War as breaking the spell of supposed white racial supremacy. Among opposing voices, there were those who compared Japanese atrocities in colonized territories to the atrocities of the Jim Crow South, and the United States' international position as hypocritical, given the situation at home. Speaking of Dubois, he is often remembered as the father of Pan-Africanism and a founder of the NAACP and longtime editor of its magazine. He also attended and later helped organize many of the Pan-African conferences and congresses. After graduating Harvard in 1892, he studied in Germany for several years and was heavily influenced by German unification, Pan-Germanism, and race theory, particularly the ideas of racial unity and race as a positive force in history. He committed himself to working for the rise of black people and, as one source put it, taking for granted that their best development means the best development of the world. The idea of race as a primary organizing factor for humanity, superseding other categories and characteristics, is central to some strands of Pan-Africanism. That black people the world over have enough in common because of their blackness to work together and have common goals regardless of their other differences. The first Pan-African Congress in Paris in 1919 was mostly organized and attended by black people from the United States and Europe, with little representation from Africa itself or from the Caribbean. It characterized Western black people as the leaders of black liberation, and was much more incrementalist in its stated political goals. But by the time of the Fifth Pan-African Congress in 1945, attendance was more international. Goals were more radical, such as calls for immediate African liberation, and the group was more leftist and explicitly anti-capitalist. 
Starting in the 1920s, one of several currents in Pan-African thought, quote, articulated a Pan-African politics that sought to link African liberation, national independence in the Caribbean, and anti-racist struggles in the United States with proletarian revolution for socialism, and that current had strengthened by the mid-40s. With Ghana's independence in 1957, Kwame Nkrumah, Ghana's first prime minister and president, became a leading voice in Pan-Africanism. Nkrumah was a political activist and organizer who had been general secretary of Ghana's first political party, when Ghana was still called the Gold Coast, later formed his own political party, and was instrumental in Ghana's independence movement. He saw revolution and decolonization as leading to rebirth and solidarity for Africa. As conceived and promoted by Nkrumah, Pan-Africanism was not a purely black movement, but one for all of the continent of Africa, including the so-called Arabic states, a marked change from earlier definitions. His vision was a United States of Africa, a federation of sovereign states like the current European Union. 1958 saw the first All-African Peoples Conference, and every independent state on the continent, except for South Africa, participated. Participants agreed to support the emancipation of the continent, including providing material support in the form of funding, weapons, training, volunteers, or other aid to states fighting colonial oppression. Some ideological differences and schisms emerged, but there was a united voice with regards to raising the standard of living of member states and defending their sovereignty, as well as supporting freedom fighters and decolonization. A BBC article about the African Summit Conference in Addis Ababa in 1963 describes it thusly, Leaders of 32 African nations have set up an organization that will give them a united voice for the first time in Africa's history. Its primary aim will be to decolonize the remaining bastions of white rule in southern Rhodesia, South Africa, Mozambique, and Angola. It plans to support African freedom fighters with finance, arms, volunteers, and training bases, and to close off their airspace to colonial forces. Heads of state were urged to impose sanctions on South Africa and break off diplomatic relations. The conference also expressed concern about racial discrimination in the United States. The last Pan-African Congress, before Double Zeta aired, was in 1974, and up to that time was the only one held in Africa, in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. There have been two more Pan-African Congresses since then, in 1994 and 2014. The focus of the 1974 conference was on envisioning Pan-Africanism post-deliberation, and Tanzanian President Julius Nyerere spoke of opposition to racialism, colonialism, oppression, and exploitation everywhere, and recognizing that an end to colonialism is not an end to the oppression of man. In the United States, the black power movement of the 60s and 70s saw their local struggle as part of a larger global movement to fight against racism and imperialism. And by the time Zeta aired, there were no more European or American colonies on the continent, though there was still white minority rule in South Africa and Namibia would not be independent of South Africa until 1988. But neocolonialism, the use of economic, political, cultural, or other pressures to control or influence other countries, especially former dependencies, was recognized as a new threat. Though many African leaders tried to avoid aligning themselves with either side of the Cold War, it was mostly unavoidable. From the 1950s through the 1970s, Aid packages came with strings attached, and foreign governments frequently interfered in the region in order to win over governments to their side or install new, friendly governments. And by interfere, I mean not just attaching economic policy requirements to aid, but also backing coup attempts and engaging in market manipulation to make regimes unpopular. 
The Angolan Civil War, which began as soon as Angola became independent from Portugal in 1975 and continued until 2002, was a proxy war of the Cold War era, with each side supporting one of two formerly anti-colonial guerrilla movements, one communist and one anti-communist. By the time of the 1974 Pan-African Congress, deep divisions were beginning to show among attendees. Black nationalists versus Marxist-Leninists, African states versus non-state liberation movements. They had united around the fight for black self-determination and had won home rule, which, as one of my sources put it, forced a new question. Who rules at home? Various Pan-African organizations splintered around class and gender issues. In the United States, these schisms were encouraged by police and FBI infiltrators. As we touched on last week in discussing Double Zeta's various African influences, one criticism of Pan-Africanism is that it homogenizes the experiences of people of African descent, in which there is a vast diversity of cultures, languages, religions, and so on. Critics also point to the difficulties in reconciling those divisions, even within a single country or a specific diaspora community. Basically, that with such diversity, it's hard to find common ground. The counter-arguments being that there are commonalities of experience. That all of the continent of Africa experienced colonialism. That colonized Africa and the black communities around the world experience racism. Nkrumah considered the uniting struggle the struggle against imperialism. But as we see in history, fighting against colonialism was unifying, but with independence won, there were many more different ideas about how to move forward. This is all very interesting, but other than the colors of Pudu's outfit, what does this have to do with Double Zeta? Well, for one thing, the Africa of Double Zeta is, again, the stage for a war between outside powers. Tom let drop a tiny spoiler for me that there is an organization in the Universal Century that also, basically, is pursuing Africa for Africans. They are trying to expel all other powers from the continent. I didn't say that. (laughs) You asked me if it would be helpful to know that such a thing existed. (laughs) I asked if it would change your analysis if hypothetically such an organization might exist. We also see various groups attempting to organize around concepts of race, around region, or around lived experiences. We see the construction of Spacenoid as a race by Axis. Uh, We also see the construction of the idea of a spacenoid around more of a regionalism, people who live in space. I think a lot of what we've seen with Ayug and the cause of spacenoids, as amorphous as that might be in Zeta and Double Zeta, uh, shows many of the same divisions in interest between the wealthy financial backers, the businessmen behind Ayug, down to the motivations of Bright, who we know was born on Earth but considers himself to be a spacenoid now, and then to the Shangri-La kids, for whom class issues are much more relevant than racial ones. Bright and people like him also used to represent a more moderate voice. I think they would have been happy to still be affiliated with the Earth Federation government so long as the various sides had more representation versus like total independence for the sides, which is a different thing. One can imagine Bright trying to go to the Federation leadership with a petition on behalf of the Spacenoids to get them to write something about uh, respecting Spacenoid traditions into the constitution of one of the sides. 
And then you look at Zeon and you go all the way back to Girin's fascist ultranationalism. But that is also a way of harnessing this feeling of a collective racial identity. That was side three claiming to fight on behalf of all space noids mm -hmm. while pursuing a side three dominated empire. I also see some parallels. You know, there was that one particular sentence about trying to unify Pan-African politics around these various struggles and trying to see the commonalities between Africa fighting for liberation from colonialism, the Caribbean fighting for independence, and the anti-racist struggles in the United States and find commonality between all of those, even though there are aspects of these struggles that are obviously quite different and these are different populations. And then we look at, say, Caraba and Ayug, and Caraba is Earth-based. They don't necessarily have any personal interest in the condition of space noids, uh, but both organizations have this mutual sort of environmentalist interest in the Earth that unites them. And a kind of reformist attitude towards the political leadership of the Federation. But take it a step further and ask about the commonalities between the Shangri-La kids on the Argama and Taman in the fishing village mm -hmm. and Maasai at the oasis. Like, I think this arc of Double Zeta asks us to consider the possible commonalities between these marginalized communities on Earth and the space noids. Being anti-Titans was a unifying struggle. Now that the Titans are gone, there is a sense that things have splintered considerably. And if you think specifically about that segment of Zeta where Ayug was aligned with Axis mm -hmm. against the Titans, this is very clearly a conflict now between the like ultra-nationalist wing of the pan-space movement versus the more moderate incrementalist part. Two other reasons why I don't think that's much of a reach. We identified the Titans from the beginning as being like a colonial occupation force, a colonial police force. And we know, based on the depictions of Africa so far in Double Zeta, that the writing and design and art teams were looking very closely at Africa. And probably not just reference books, but contemporary events, contemporary news around these social, cultural, and political movements, and potentially being influenced not just for the visuals, but also for aspects of the story. One of the things I love about animation and analyzing animation is that if this were a live action movie and they had filmed it in Africa, then it would be hard to tell what visuals were conscious decisions and what just happened to be there. But with animation, you know that when that mosque shows up in Maasai's oasis town and it looks practically identical to the Grand Mosque at Agadez, you know that that was intentional. And from that place of understanding that something is intentional, from knowing that the decision to put the Federation capital in Dakar, of all places, was intentional, you can then ask, and so what were they trying to say? You never have to wonder if they were saying something. This was one of those topics where every little bit I read about it had so many interesting tangents that I couldn't cover here, but I did find some great resources. Please do check the show notes and spend some time digging into that. Very fascinating stuff.
25 episodes ago, Judo and Mashima were brawling in a junkyard while Lina woke up early to buy milk and schemed to trick her brother into an honest life. The tone of the show has shifted gradually, never abandoning its sense of humor entirely, but in little drips and drabs, that great overarching tragedy of the universal century has permeated the lives of these kids. Now the war has come home. For the first time, tragedy has struck dead into the heart of the Shangri-La gang. What they have lost is not Lena, not really. She was lost to them all the way back in episode 12. But in absentia, she became totemic for the idea that with enough dash and luck, Judo and company could undo their mistakes, save people, change fate for the better. They could believe that things would go back to normal once they rescued Lena. Now, that belief is a burning cottage. It did not need to end this way, but it was always going to end. That kind of belief can't be sustained forever. All the intervening time, the trauma of battle and captivity, would have changed their relationships. Some threads, unwound, cannot be wound again. Now, Lena must represent something different for them. But the show ends without offering any hints of what that will be. Something up in the air has shattered. We wait to see where the pieces fall. But as for Lena, the person and not the idea, she and Judo must part now. Avidazen by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Until we meet again, that is the meaning of the familiar words that men repeat at parting in the street. Ah yes, till then, but when death intervening rends us asunder, with what ceaseless pain we wait for thee again. The friends who leave us do not feel the sorrow of parting as we feel it, who must stay, lamenting day by day, and knowing when we wake upon the morrow, we shall not find in its accustomed place the one beloved face. It were a double grief if the departed, being released from earth, should still retain a sense of earthly pain. It were a double grief if the true-hearted, who loved us here, should on the farther shore remember us no more. Believing in the midst of our afflictions that death is a beginning, not an end, we cry to them and send farewells that better might be called predictions, being foreshadowings of the future, thrown into the vast unknown. Faith overleaps the confines of our reason, and if by faith, as in old times was said, women receive their dead raised up to life, then only for a season our partings are, nor shall we wait in vain until we meet again. Next time on episode 3.27, Footprints in the Sand. We cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 29, and the jazz theme of a much older and more jaded man. You're not one of us.
Torres catches some triple Zetas. How can she fly, looking down her nose all the time? Despicable plans. A mobile suit with kanji on it. The stages of grief in the Universal Century are anger, catatonia, being yelled at, becoming Genki, and murder. And the first new writer since Zeta episode 22. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting... The one glove aesthetic in Double Zeta is easily explained once you realize that the only fashion store surviving in the Universal Century is a single hot topic from the mid-90s. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion is from Joni in the MSB Patrons Discord. Thanks, Joni. And thank you for listening. There are two weeks left to submit you, for you to submit your haiku-style poem for our Season 3 contest. For this one, it'll be one week. Then the- oh, yeah, you're right. No, it'll be one week. I would just like to get into a groove, please. I would just like to be able to do that. I see it is red. <laughs> we are a go. <laughs> yes. Take two. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try to remember my witty and insightful comments. I'm sorry. No, it's not your fault. Isn't it? How many minutes worth of bell tolling do they do? Don't they know they're interfering with their local podcasters? (laughs) The tone of the show has shifted gradually. I feel like that's the same car. Just the going in circles to mm-hmm. f- with us, maybe. Are they looking for parking or something? Ugh. I guess a Airplane. plane to go overhead. Yep. Jesus Christ. <laughs> from the same collection as the Children's Crusade, which is how I found it. Cool. Yeah. I'm helping. Yeah, you are. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> honk if you relate to trauma. <laughs> Haman uses the city as a pawn, assuming that Bright won't want to fire the Mega Particle Cannon, or the Mega Particle Beam Cannon? High Mega Cannon. That Bright won't want to fire his main guns. We have new neighbors upstairs, and unfortunately they're a great deal noisier than our old neighbors. (laughs) (laughs) That sound was them dropping something. Working as intended. You got a lot to say about this one. Did we? Well, uh, we've been going for an hour and 15 minutes. Oh, dang. With almost no prelude. So, yes. It was an intense episode. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. A deeply affecting and upsetting episode. Glad we didn't try to combine both halves of Lena's blood. I don't think we could have done it. No it would have way. been like a three hour <laughs> episode. If we released one episode a month, we could have done that. Not not if we're doing an episode a week. Alright, are we done? Yep. Cool. <laughs>